0: Welcome Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld. I am so excited about this conversation. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of yours, and I was actually introduced like some of the greatest things in my life. I've been introduced through through my own children. I have a number of my kids who listen uh, consistently to Inward and to some of your other Torah. It's just a, a real zechus and honor for us to have you on the Cast MG's podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld, and welcome. Sure.
1: Thank you so much, Rabbi Wildes. Um, a very, very kind thing to say and continues to be a pleasant surprise. Um, so Baruch Hashem. <laughs> and I'm excited, you know, that it's taken a little bit for us to, to get to this point now. So uh, yes. in, accord- with the preve- in accordance with the preventions should be the, uh, the value. So, you know, I, this, this stands to be a very special podcast in, in relation to the preventions.
0: So I'm going to get right into it because um, I view you as someone that I personally, professionally can get advice from and guidance on a spiritual level and, um, and a lot of our students and listeners as well. So this is something that I deal with um, a lot in my work, in my outreach work. Um, what do you recommend for someone who considers themselves to be spiritual? Okay, we have a lot of people who come to MGE, we focus primarily on 20s and 30s, primarily not from the Orthodox world. Most people coming around here, I would say, are from the conservative reform uh, communities uh, or unaffiliated. And a lot of them are, you know, spiritual people. They consider themselves to be spiritual, but they haven't found their spiritual path in Torah. And they might be um, going to yoga uh, classes, you know, once, twice a week. They might be meditating. Uh, Some of them might even be into Buddhism. But the Torah, the mitzvahs, just doesn't seem to be doing it for them. Some recommendation to a person who is perhaps listening now, how to go about observing or approaching Torah and mitzvahs that can help that individual find spirituality from within. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredibly significant question, obviously. With regards to the, uh, the, the chasm between what we might refer to as spirituality and what we might refer to as religiosity, um, which is an important distinction. So first and foremost, one of the healthiest things that our generation can do is make a healthy distinction between spirituality and religiosity. Because in truth, the, the term religion in its framework does not necessarily capture the potency or the intensity and the light like that Yiddishkeit or Judaism has to offer so when it comes to spirituality the analogy i always love to give is that you can have a bottle of water and the bottle is the religious framework and the content of that bottle is the spiritual element that is at the heart of our religious observance now you can have a person who has a very healthy and robust relationship between the bottle of ritual and the content of essence but in the end of the day, if you have a person who has too much bottle and no liquid in it, meaning to say someone highly religious without any spirituality, we've seen the destructive nature that can come about from something like that. In our generation, there's much more of an emphasis on the content of the bottle without the bottle, of spirituality without the necessary confines of religiosity. So, so first and foremost, what I would try and do is validate the disinterest in in the typical model of what one would conceive of when they hear the word religion, right? Or the associations that one may have even with the religion of their youth to to identify, to sit with, empathize in that space of their potential issue. And then I believe to to ask the question of what exactly is it that is working for you? And where are you getting it from? So if it's breath and, and the importance of breath that a person is reading in a new age yoga book, Or if it's the notions of mindfulness and acceptance that one might be reading in some Buddhist path of, you know, reduced spiritual teachings. So then we have to believe enough in our tradition to say there is nothing missing from Yiddishkeit. There is absolutely nothing that you can find anywhere that cannot be found in the tradition that you come from. In particular, the Torah. And then, you know, chanoch, not Lenar al-pidako, but identify what it is that the person wants and then show it to them from their own tradition and validate the tradition from inside of itself. And then you begin the conversation about the ritual because mitzvot and Torah is not separate from the content of the spirituality that they're seeking. If you can show them the light of spirituality in Yiddishkeit, you can then expand that to mitzvos and meisentovim.
0: Great. So that that's very helpful. Let's get a little more specific then. You gave two amazing examples, let's say breath, and you also talked about mindfulness. Um, so those are, you know, very um sort of spiritual buzzwords, if you will. So can you tell our listeners what tell us a little about breath from a Torah perspective, um, and mindfulness, how how someone can achieve in a very practical way. You know, I think one of the lures of some of the spiritual practices of Buddhism or some of the ancient you know near ancient eastern religions is is that you know it's quicker you know for a lot of us torah i gotta go to yeshiva i gotta learn this that da, that da, da, I, I all these prerequisites who has the time most american jews don't have the background what can someone do let's say to access breath or mindfulness that doesn't have so much of a background or time yes. Right.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm like fighting in my mind to go down the route of kind of discussing why it is that Jews may find more of an affinity to their spiritual source <laughs> in kind of far eastern elements of spirituality. Right. Not necessarily religious right. orientation, but elements in Buddhism, in Buddhism as it's translated into an American kind of context, which is really a little bit pessimistic to a certain degree. So the, the fact is that and the fact is that you can find everything in our tradition. From a perspective of breath, from a perspective of breath, I can't speak from experience, although I'm at a point right now where I'm coming to really believe that the actual practice of breathing might be something, you know, that is very significant and accessible. I could only speak for myself, but hopefully mm-hmm. something I believe can really kind of provide something that I feel I've been missing, which is real kind of a somatic or a body oriented grounding in spirituality. But I think that breath, first and foremost, Ruach Chaim, it goes, breath is a suge that goes from the very beginning of the Torah down to the most minute details of human's daily life. Breath is the source of life. It's the vitality that is what we refer to as the soul. The word neshama, the word soul, is the same language as neshima, as breath, and the implication as explicit in mystical texts that are based on practice, as well as gemara, which is based on halachic observance, that breath and life are not simply acute word matching, but they both represent the same thing. One element of Mm -hmm. breath is the back and forth nature of it right, that it's a sort of perpetual running and returning. There is no inhalation without exhalation and there is no exhalation without inhalation. And that's a fundamental kind of point of understanding how to breathe, the running and the returning of it. And I think in terms of a practical methodology of breath, it's, it's there. It's extant in the text. It's there. It exists. But I think something very simple like being aware of breath, which is something we'll talk about in mindfulness, and breathing in, holding that breath for four seconds, then holding, or breathing in for four seconds, holding for six, and exhaling for five, and thinking about Hashem when a person is engaged in that. Or think about when I'm breathing in, I am collecting kind of the, the burden or the effort or the heaviness of day-to-day life, of this moment, and whatever provides a certain sense of constriction, and to let myself feel it. And to let it build up a little bit and then to allow myself to consciously exhale and there's an inherent relief in that and a person realizes that for the last five seconds i have i've focused internally and i've been free from kind of the chaos of the outside
0: Mm -hmm. so and 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 would you recommend somebody do this let's say they started davening or they come on shabbat morning could there is there a particular time let's say in the tefillah that this could be appropriate or you're just saying in general any time somebody has a, a minute or two free, they can do this please then. So, so
1: it, depends, it depends on a personality type. And, and hopefully if a person is willing to commit to practice, right? Whenever it comes to mindfulness or spirituality, it's called avodas Hashem, spiritual practice, without the engagement. Mm-hmm. And the engagement is always one of perpetual practicing. A person doesn't really ever reach a point of being beyond practicing. Uh, mm-hmm. A person is, mm-hmm. their whole life is practicing. It's all hachana. But I think that it's wonderful to set as, you know, in a preparation before a person sits down to pray in whatever way they pray, mm-hmm. overcome the the basic desire, tendency to just get the words through my mouth and be over with kind of the checklist oriented form of prayer and to pause and to allow myself to breathe in and to ground myself in the process of what I'm about to engage in. And and. In addition to the pause, the pause is valuable on a somatic, psychological, emotional level and a spiritual level, but the delay is also the goal. The delay that mindful breathing demands gives us a fighting chance that perhaps our minds will, the clouds of our minds will clear for a second Mm -hmm. to maybe get a flash of insight of I'm about to pray, which means that I I believe in something, which means that that thing Mm -hmm. that I believe in might have an impact in my life. And that's the beginning of spiritual
0: contemplation. Beautiful. I mean, so that could sort of be a, a modern version, if you will, of Chasidim Rishonim, how you show in Sha'achas Lefnehatzfila. What I just quoted from the Talmud that there's a tradition that the early pious sages would, would meditate, or, or I don't know exactly what they were, they would wait, they would prepare somehow yeah. for a full hour before they began to daven, before they began to pray. Um, it, it represents, it
1: re- I'm so glad, Rabbi, that you brought up that Maimar Rechazal because the word Shehia, the word waiting is such a, a powerful one because it just means overcoming the natural tendency to move forward, to be productive. You know, mm-hmm. it, it demands, the whole aspect of breath reorients a person's relationship with prayer, relationship with what it means to be a human being. If I look at prayer as, you know, a means to an end, then breath before prayer is just, you know, an in- interruption that needs to get, be gotten over so I can ask what I need to ask. But if mm-hmm. the goal of prayer is prayer, which is the true posture of prayer, that the goal of prayer is the experience of praying, so then the breathing becomes part and parcel of the prayer. right? Yeah. The way David HaMelech ends Tehillim is that in the end of the day, every breath, every breath, every breath. And all there is, is the breath.
0: Wow. You know, I, I, um, you said before about the overcoming the natural tendency. Um, I think that's one of the struggles that a lot of people have with prayer, which is that it's not a very result driven kind of exercise. And if it becomes that, you know, well, I need this. I didn't get that. I I think that's one of the great struggles. A lot of people have with, Judaism in general, it's not as, you know, we live in a very result driven world where people see sort of the products of their actions after putting in a certain amount and move on to the next thing. And Judaism really requires a much more contemplative inherent value of the moment. I mean, I personally struggle with this tremendously just to sort of be in the moment. So the the breath idea I think it's just so powerful Um, you were starting to say something about mindfulness then
1: sure sure so so mindfulness you know and again it has to be cleansed and a person has to understand what what we mean when we say mindfulness there's a spiritual notion of mindfulness there's a psychological notion of mindfulness now the unique thing about mindfulness is that the spiritual notion is the source of the psychological notion you know because psychology wasn't able to handle all of the spiritual terms so spiritual thinkers were forced to become psychological thinkers and making it some sort of evidence based manageable way of dealing mm-hmm. with things but mindfulness is is very simply and i highly recommend i have a dear friend uh, benji dr benji epstein uh, who wrote a book, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. "Living in the Presence," yeah. which is an incredibly, incredibly comprehensive and valuable book about Judaism and mindfulness. And there's other books out there as well. Uh, uh, there's uh, Dr. Feiner wrote a book on on mindfulness as well. So there are many books out there. But mindfulness, uh, to, to paraphrase John Kabat-Zinn, who's a, a, a Jew, a, a Jewish thinker, uh, someone who spent a lot of time in the East, uh, a medically trained doctor, who's really the father of American or North American mindfulness, prior to the kind of capitalization of mindfulness, which we see now, right? It's a, an amazing thing that we take mindfulness, which is the departure and the one saving possibility of, like, capitalism, and we Turn it into a capitalistic, you know. Yeah, well,
0: listen, if we can, we'll monetize anything that isn't moving.
1: And you know what? (laughs) Let them have the money as long as people are doing mindfulness, you know. But um, but Jon Kabat-Zinn summarizes mindfulness, which is in a very beautiful way. And every word has to be unpacked. But he describes mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way at the present moment, non-judgmentally. Mm-hmm. Again, that's paying attention in a particular way, at the present moment, non judgmental mm-hmm. Now, what I would reorient only in terms of a Yiddishkeit or a Jewish approach is that the first four, let's Let's say these four building blocks represent the four letters of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name. So the Yud, which is Chachma, would represent paying attention, right? Uh, stopping and paying attention. A symptom of sorts, closing off a Yud is a very small dot. Then in a particular way, meaning the rules and the regulations, that's the Hey, that's Bina. Okay, that's the way I'm going to frame this experience. At the present moment, the Vav is drawing down into this moment itself. And then the hay is the malchus, which is non-judgmentality of accepting it. But here I think it's very important to differentiate that if we're talking about, quote unquote, Buddhism, and I can't speak for Buddhism on any level. I could speak about the traditional spiritual tenets of Buddhism that are a prerequisite for any kind of healthy religious framework. Rabbi Tatz has a good Mm -hmm. book on this. But instead of non-judgmentality, Yiddishkeit is is a judgmental posture it's a judgment it's a it's a positive judgment the the bias there's a positivity bias as there's a wonderful book that came out based on the teachings of lubavitcher abbess yiddishkeit is not non-judgmental it is a is a a positivity bias to the point that everything is seen as a positive elevation whether we know how or not that becomes a very separate conversation but it's not in this present moment non-judgmentally it's it's judging it for the good it's seeing the good in it and it's elevating mm-hmm. that moment and it's demanding that this moment become a gateway to encounter god
0: and, and when you talk about the um uh just not judging my my, my son my oldest son who, who is very into meditation and Kabbalah and is like he always talks about this idea of not judging the situation so how do you stare that if you will how do you make yeah. that work with with human with, um, posture yeah i want to hear no, you know no, what well, i get yeah just just with the idea of not um you know you just said everything uh, is positive judging it positively, I mean, judging yeah, it positively.
1: Yeah. right so what i would say and i would you know i would defer to anybody who practices to be honest i i can speak in theory and Bezra session one day i'll know what it means to to do practice on one level or another Bezra Sashem. But um, so I defer, I'm not trying to define what anybody's inner experience is, but I think there's two ways of looking at judgment. Judgment can be a, a cognitive tool of looking at a scenario and making a value judgment on it, right? Mm-hmm. A, a, a discerning whether this is a, a positive or a negative thing. That's a cognitive tool. And, and then there's the posture of being in this world, which is completely one of judgment. Meaning the whole way of experiencing reality, of right. being in a moment, right. of feeling anything, is through judgment where I am already questioning it. You know, what what does this mean for me right now? What does this mean? Right. How does this affect me? It's more of a an egocentric, not in an arrogant way, but an egocentricity at the heart of every encounter. So I believe that one needs to detach themselves from that in a moment Mm -hmm. of meditation as a preparation for meditation and in the process of meditation again one one is not cognitively directing their minds in in a particular way so in that sense a person it's more of a non-active engagement but i do think over here over here the positive judgment is also an an So there's two Mahalchams. First off, we get rid of the posture of judgment. And then I can Mm -hmm. look at a scenario and say, this is for the good or this is not for the good. So the posture of judging everything as it affects me in my own individual way needs to be removed. But still, I believe there has to be a positivity bias. But the other way I would frame it, and I think this is really at the heart of Kabbalah and Hasidus, is that in truth, they're, they're one and the same, what your son is saying and what I'm saying. In the sense that it's not so much when a person lets go of the desire to judge or value the scenario, a person taps into a place of positivity.
0: Mm. And so why why, why is, why is that? Why is that the default? Why is positivity the default?
1: So it, it, because it has to be because otherwise all is lost. It's Mm. not the natural. It's not the natural positioning. Right, right. It's a, you, I mean, it's, it's a it's choice. I mean, it's a choice to look at it. It's a choice to choose to, to frame experience in that lens. I agree with you. It is not a given, mm-hmm. but it is the only option. Mm-hmm. That's what I think, meaning it's a survival technique. It's not, you know, I always like to say, and where Abin Ahman's teachings offer us in, in the teachings of happiness and positivity. You know, if somebody is truly experiencing positivity, they're not going to warn you a thousand times, never, ever let go of positivity, never let go of positivity. It's forbidden to let go of positivity. You need to force yourself to be positive in spite of all things, right? That doesn't sound necessarily like such a, a great argument for positivity, right? Mm-hmm. Because if it were there, why would I have to force myself so much? But Elma, the whole avoda is, and and this is by design, is to compel oneself to joy. Or to choose joy. Wow. And then That's by a, non yeah. judgmentality, a person taps into that space of when a person comes to the bareness of reality, the only thing to do is judge it positively with hope.
0: Otherwise, you don't, okay, so will,
1: don't look it up.
0: And, and you say, when you say there's no choice, I mean, there is a choice, obviously, it's a choice, but it's the best choice because you're saying the, the alternative is despair.
1: So I, 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 I think that you're right. It's the best choice. And I also think that it maybe it's not so much of a real choice because a, a Jew, again, why, how, in what way, I, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But, but a Jew, I can only speak from my own experience. And the particular is representative of the, the collective as well, in every case. Even when a person tries to allow themselves to entertain the opposite choice, of, of things being geferluch and, and, and being broken. And, and, and even if decisions are made based on that perspective, that just means that a person wasn't present enough to, to come back to the conclusion that, no, it's still positive. Meaning even at the heart of despair, there is no despair because we're at the elasticity of faith the elasticity of, of the Chachma, of our Torah, and the way emuna is transcribed through the sages and through the teachers of, of Yiddishkeit is that wherever you go, Hashem is there with you. And even in the places of hopelessness, a person will, if, if we're open enough, your person comes to a place of realizing that I still, as long as I'm breathing, there is still more right with me than there is wrong with me. Beautiful. As long as I'm breathing and there's an irreducibility of hope. And why? because we've survived death, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through the impossible already.
0: So I want to, uh, I want everyone to just take note of two books that, um, Rabbi Rosenfeld just mentioned. Number one, positivity bias, which I read also, it's phenomenal based on the teachings of the late and great Lubavitch Rebbe. Also, you made reference to Rabbi Akiva Tatz's book, Letters, Mm Uh, Letter to a Buddhist Jew, which is a a dialogue between Rabbi Tatz and one of his students who became a a practicing Buddhist and some of the differences. And it's a phenomenal elucidation of some of the differences Mm -hmm. between Judaism and Buddhism. Rabbi, I want to keep you... And um, and Dr.
1: Benji Epstein's uh, Living in the Presence. Oh,
0: yes, Dr. I've seen that also. What is that called, Dr. Epstein's book? Dr. Epstein's
1: book is Living in the Presence.
0: Living in the Presence. Okay, yeah. and that's a book about mindfulness.
1: Mindfulness and Judaism.
0: Okay, beautiful. Okay, great. So I want to stay on this uh, again, coming to you for advice sure. and guidance in terms of what I do and my experiences and a lot of the people who come to MJE. Many believe today, thankfully, in a higher power. They'll, be, they'll profess, I think something like 80% of Americans believe in miracles and believe in a higher power, but many are turned off by the notion of having to listen to the commands of some higher power. How would you teach or share the concept? What's called in Hebrew Malchus kingship, God's sovereignty, right? To someone who doesn't see themselves really as a loyal subject, uh, or, or, or that the king of Kings, as we refer to God mm-hmm. has any sort of binding authority over mm-hmm. our lives. You know, nobody wants to be told what to do. How would you approach such an individual?
1: an amazing 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 question amazing question so what i'll say and again this is only from my i can only speak from my place the the general concept is malchutso biratzon kiblo alayhim. first and foremost the person needs to cultivate a desire towards accepting the concept of kingship the balhasula by the way
0: by the way i'm sorry if i look down it's cuz i'm taking notes but continue please uh, the balhasula yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Meaning, Malhusa Baratzon means that prior to the emergence of a desire or a wanting, the conversation doesn't begin. Right. Right? There's no compulsion in spirituality. There's no compulsion. Compulsion doesn't work on any level. And the decision to desire to do it and then to compel oneself to do it, that works, right? Hmm. But without the desire, yeah. without the Malhusa Baratzon, a person has to willfully prepare themselves to enter into the space of having a relationship with, with God in, in this type of way. I, I think that one of the most difficult things now is that we, we no longer have a, a metaphor, to, or we no longer have a referent that we can look at the concept of kingship or rulership and identify like the grandeur that it was meant to, to truly convey. So so the words that we're using still, Malchus is not the problem, but the way we translate it as like this monarchy of sorts is still somewhat of a difficult thing. I think that first and foremost, when it comes to when it comes to the mitzvos, there, there's two ways of, of identifying what the Torah is telling us. There's the the, the oral law which is the Talmud, which is Mishnah, which is the revealed aspect and the teachings of the Torah and all of its manifestations. And then there's something referred to as the inner teachings of Torah, panimya Torah. Now, what must be understood at the outset, at, the, at, at every point of it, that these two Torahs are wedged together through and through and are, in truth, ultimately just reflective of one another. There is no deviation. There's the same rules, same dimensions, same everything. Anytime that a person encounters a stira or a contradiction in terms of the relate of something that Panimiyasa Torah, the inner interiority of Torah, is saying versus what the Chitzoniasa Torah is saying versus the exteriority of Torah, then it's a mistake in understanding and not a problem with the ideas themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're just two ways of approaching a singular idea. So, in the Zohar, we have a concept of Taryag mitzvos. We have a concept of Taryag mitzvos, of 613 commandments. Okay, that's how we tend to translate the word mitzvah. In the Zohar, there's not really this concept of 613 mitzvos. It's referred to as Taryag eten. Eten is a, a translation of the word etza, which means a suggestion. Suggestion. And so, I believe that. In order to reorient ourselves towards the concept of mitzvot, which we tend to see as commands, we first have to identify them as suggestions. Meaning to say that what the Torah is doing for me, in all of its manifold expressions and minutia of halacha, is a suggestion as to how to best accomplish self-actualization in this world. Mm-hmm. That the mitzvah means something different to each and every person. That me, as let's say, I'm, I'm a 34-year-old person who's beginning to put on the pair of tefillin. I haven't put tefillin on before, let's say. Mm-hmm. My intentions of tefillin are different, are unique, and singular in the grand history of, of Matan Torah. My own experience. So these are suggestions to me as how to best actualize myself. Mm-hmm. Once I accept that, And I might have to willfully accept that. I may blindly accept that. But one must assume that the suggestions that they're getting from a higher power that they place their trust in and have a generally positive association with, that those suggestions are for our best interest. And then a person can translate that into the mitzvot. When I know that these are not commandments that are looking to truncate my experience they're not commandments that are looking for subservience and kind of simple listening to rules for the sake of the honor of that king there there might be a way to relate to that in that way as well but from the perspective of the doer of the mitzvah the mitzvah needs to become my path my singular path towards the king
0: and then so so, rabbi Yes. Yeah. So can I, tr- can I stop you there for a minute? Yes, do you mind? Absolutely. First of all, I love, I love the reframing, Um. you know, it reminded me of a joke, you know, the 10 commandments are not the 10 suggestions. We always say these are things God is commanding you to do not like suggesting, but what you're saying, Rabbi, and tell me if you think I'm characterizing it correctly, is that our view of the mitzvah should be of a loving, you know, you didn't say this, but sort of a loving parent who has this wisdom and is giving us a recipe for self actualization in our lives. Yes. Would right. you say yes. that's a fair characterization? Absolutely. So if,
1: if, absolutely. That's so absolutely. So, if that's the
0: case, then so why do you think I, I, I personally view the mitzvahs as, as um, even if I'm not Zocha, even if I'm not, I'm not merit, I don't, I don't merit to cognitively, intellectually understand how this is so good for me. I generally see the mitzvahs in that way, but I encounter so many amazing people who just don't have that attitude towards the Torah. They don't view the Torah; they view it as a series of commandments from a from a Creator that's distant and, and, mm-hmm. and disassociated, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and is requiring us to do these things so we can serve Him. Uh, how how would you help such a person?
1: The Torah, the Torah has had. The Torah has had, for better or for worse, religion, most certainly, but also our teachings have undergone uh, a, a, a series of unfortunate framings that have caused damage. That that through, you know, nobody, I don't think anyone does it deliberately. And every element of Hamshachas Torah in this generation and in, throughout the generations is part and parcel of the general divine plan of all things. But when we framed Yiddishkeit like another type of religion of obedience or, you know, the attempt to cleanse myself of some sin. And this is naturally what happens when a person is not in their own land, exiled, traumatized and re-traumatized and re-traumatized and re-traumatized to the extent that what we have and what is coming down to us in terms of our understanding of our relationship with God is is highly, highly it is highly wrong very often and and it that wrongness even though it's a hair's breadth you won't necessarily be able to identify the the mistaken shift of it but it becomes pathological It becomes when a person starts looking at their relationship with God as this one of an angry, an angry, capricious creator who created this plaything that he just wants to punish and, and create some sort of, you know, painful experience. And that only if I align myself with this invisible creator's will, will I be freed from the fires of hell and merit the glory of, you know, Eden, that's obviously going to disgust people. And and the radical thing in our generation, Rabbi, and I think this is this bodes very well, is that our generation ha- has identified the freedom to shirk off that unhealthy perspective of faith. But what we're finding is that the thirst, there is a thirst, there is a tzimmaon, there is a burning desire in our generation to uncover a healthy, big perspective of Hakadosh Baruch Hu.
0: Wow, wow. I mean, I see that. I I definitely see that. I see both of these things happening at the same time, a thirst for something greater, a natural, almost intuitive sense that thoughtful, sensitive people have towards the the deeper part of who they are. Um, But like this block, this block that Judaism can't be that path because it's just filled with all these rules and laws that you know we're never explained or don't seem to make a lot of sense yeah. so how could how could keeping code like i can eat this but i can't eat that so yeah. that's somehow going to make that that's like a path to enlightenment like how You know, um, and um, in
1: this, on a practical level, there has to be a system of education. And, you know, with all of the my Rebbe Rav Moshe Weinberger wrote a book on outreach and the halachas of outreach and what needs to be identified and what doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be a tidal wave of, you know, acceptance upon oneself, the willingness to engage in every minute halacha. There are gradations of growth. And I think that if you give a person like any meal, if you give a person a, a tasty appetizer, without stuffing them on the appetizer, you know, but you give them a tasty enough appetizer, the the tantalization of the desire to eat more is gonna be a natural outgrowth. Now, if there's trauma blocking the ability to, you know, then then that trauma needs to be dealt with. And, and my perception sometimes would be that a lot of it, I mean, it, it, some of it can be healthy ignorance, but a lot of times there's a, a, a traumatic kind of way of relating to religion and for good reason for good reason where we still live in the shadow of of the shoah you know which is very powerful yeah. we're still we're still right we're still in the in the time waiting for mashiach afterwards but we have to own that yeah. we have to own the trauma of it all
0: and let, let, let's let's continue on that line um you you had a whole series on your inward podcast and by the way for everyone listening here um Rabbi uh Rabbi Joey Rabbi Rosenfeld has incredible Torah out there online. His one of his podcasts is called Inward and I really recommend it and you my son Yehuda um shared with me some of your uh episodes on trauma. Can you speak a little from a kabbalistic perspective and how that also relates to your work as a rabbi and sure. as a an addiction therapist as well?
1: Sure. Sure absolutely. Um, So first and foremost, you know, before I even begin to talk about trauma, I always feel that it's necessary to make a clear cut between what may be identified as a clinical experience of trauma, which necessitates real psychological, psychiatric intervention based on an event that has taken place imposed from the outside and the general kind of framework of trauma that I tend to speak about. This has typically been referred to as capital T trauma, which event refers to a particular event, which is a separate category that does not get spoken about necessarily in spiritual terms until it gets worked out. And then the lowercase t trauma, which is basically the trauma of everyday life. Now, there is room to say, I believe, that if anyone's lived past, you know, let's say 9-11 or certainly the time period we find ourselves in now on, on various fronts, with grandparents, perhaps who have, you know, been survivors of the war or knowing survivors of the war or knowing about the Holocaust. I think it is fair to say, to a certain degree, that there's really not many people who can't necessarily identify themselves as a capital T trauma experiencer to the point that we can refer to ourselves as post-traumatic subjects, meaning our generation is a post-traumatic generation, right? It's post-trauma. So the Torah of our generation <laughs> ought to be a post-traumatic Torah. And and I think that from a from a a, a panemius oriented perspective, there is a very identifiable stream of thought when it comes to trauma. And that is that trauma is built into the plan, meaning not the suffering associated with individual cases of trauma, but trauma as a verb trauma as a as an adverb in the sense that it refers to any event that takes place. That is a direct shift or opposition to what I had assumed would be the continuation of what was happening previously any shift Mm -hmm. abrupt breaking away from what I had expected to what is now present in front of me is identifiable as a trauma.
0: And e- so even s- if it's not like it, what what normally we associate with the word trauma, like but God I die. forbid, like a re-
1: if I die, if I die, hearing right. good news can also be a traumatic experience. In the sense, I'm talking mm-hmm. again. I'm not talking symptom or pathology. Now, I'm talking the concept mm-hmm. of trauma. Trauma is mm-hmm. a sudden appearance of something. You know, the last mm-hmm. year that I gave in that trauma series was this attempt to describe this very point, and the title I gave was the the redemption of trauma and the trauma of redemption meaning that once a person frees themselves from the typical way we think about trauma, then we can come to understand how even, how even redemption itself can be considered traumatic because it's going to be a sudden shift from what we had expected, except for those who wait on a daily basis. But trauma is this sudden breaking apart of what was previously kind of created for something new taking place, something overwhelming and Here's where there's going to be a difference. In Panemius, Simpsum, Hashem's kind of, yes.
0: Uh, just just to translate the terms, oh, Panemius is just sort of the inner, yeah.
1: The inner teachings you of Torah. We could go into a right. full description of what that represents. But, but in, in the inner teachings of Torah, the trauma is constitutive, meaning it's a breaking that builds. Every breakdown is the preparation for an incoming breakthrough that necessitated the destruction or the falling apart of some previous stage, which was considered immature to a certain degree, even on a structural way, in relation to what is about to come. So the trauma, the breaking down, is always in preparation for a breakthrough. But not only that, it's not simply in the, in the aspect of a preparation, but it is part and parcel of the breakthrough itself, that the broken pieces that are a result of the trauma are the very pieces that are utilized to rebuild and reconstruct a rectified version of things in a way that could not have been possible without the breaking apart. Mm -hmm. So trauma is part of the construction. It's a shvira. It's something that breaks apart. The center cannot hold. But in that center breaking apart, we come to find that not only have we survived And we continue to move forward, but there's going to be a certain strength that is going to come from this. This is what is referred to as post-traumatic growth, which is hard to talk about when we're talking about the real symptomology of, God forbid, any type of authentic trauma or event of a trauma in the beginning, which is what we identify as post-traumatic stress disorder. But PTSD can very, when taken seriously and treated, can very quickly transform itself into a post-traumatic growth. And so I think that in, in Yiddishkeit, there, there is a, a recognition that things break in order to be built. And that's not a mistake. That's not capricious. But that is exactly how things develop. And from that perspective, all of us, I mean, birth is trauma. Being born into this right. world is trauma. The, right. the formation the of the of is trauma. Yeah. You know, it's a severing away. And and, and the Zora Qadr says that one of the calls that reverberate throughout the, the very annals of history is the scream of the child at the moment of birth because of the, the cutting away that it's experiencing from its place above. Meaning that is, but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing, God forbid. Being created is is a, a very good thing. Right? This is one of my favorite teachings in the world from the Tzadikim of Ishbitz, of Mordechai Yosef Liner of Ishbitz that uh, Chazal, they had this argument about whether, they argued for three and a half years whether it would have been more pleasant for a person to have been created or to have not been created. The language in Hebrew is, <laughs> and they come to the conclusion that in truth it would have been much more pleasant for a person to have not been created than to have been created. And so what the Ishbutzer Tzadikim say is that please pay close attention to the words themselves. It does not say it would have been better for a person not to have been created. Mm.
0: God. It simply mm.
1: says it would have pleasant. been simply more pleasant. And once a person is able to kind of accept that at the outset, that, you know, the, the pleasantness, the ease in which I'm going to experience this process that I call life is is not necessarily going to be in line with my expectations.
0: I, I think, if you don't mind me jumping jumping right in there, that I've had this conversation with students of mine who are attracted to Torah and mitzvot. We're not raised that way. And but they're but it's more of a difficult life it's more of a commitment it's more of a and i've said to them like it was like a joke like yeah life was definitely maybe a little less pleasant but that but so much more powerful and meaningful yeah. and the question is what do we sometimes we have there's a trade-off i you know there's a trade-off sometimes for pleasantness and you know i wonder if that's because you know yakov lashevet bishalva that we have a tradition that jacob wanted to sit in pleasantness and in, in tranquility but that's not our task necessarily in this world
1: so I, I i agree i agree with you wholeheartedly that at first glance pleasantness and calmness is not our lot even and bk Bashava. Mm-hmm. jacob asked to have that and he was told no i'm sorry here's the the trauma of, of yosef but i do believe that there's another there's another level which is the level of shabbos which is really just a state of consciousness mm-hmm. that that within once i accept upon myself the unpleasantness of it and the fact that the likelihood of calmness is not going to be so present then i can begin to find calmness even where it's Mm. not then i could begin to it might not be pleasant but that unpleasantness can still be by way of pleasantness
0: rabbi salvechik Rabbi Salvechik Zechazel said that in his famous footnote four of Halachic yes. Man. If so wants. funny. I was about to yeah. reference that before you said it. Oh, oh interesting. Because, you know, I was reading that and I feel like as an outreach rabbi, it's like this is the last thing I'm going to try to sell. I'm going to try to get young Jewish people to be more involved in Yiddishkeit by telling them how hard, how difficult. But people also know. People know that what, what you know, what is meaningful in life? It, it, c- can anyone... You know, find anything that's terribly meaningful in their lives that they didn't have to really sacrifice and do something, yeah. and, that, and that feeling. I think the, I think Rav says in terms of the the he talks about the third meal, where you can feel that a little that sense of tranquility, but it only comes after this terrible torment and, and mm-hmm. upheaval and conflict.
1: Yeah, and I think Rovavichik describes that so powerfully so powerfully, but I also think that if a student sees, if a student sees or a colleague sees that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice this thing called calmness and pleasantness for this thing called faith, then it, it, it mm-hmm. may make the other person aware of, you know, that this thing called faith must have something to it. You know, if yeah. this person is willing to sacrifice their manucha for this, right? If a person is willing to toil in this world, Adam la la'amal yulad, Right, this is an, is an amazing verse that says that by by Yisachar, it's that he saw calmness was good, and so and he girded his shoulders to bear the burden. What does that mean? If you see calmness is good, why bear the burden? What burden is there to bear? You want calmness, and the Balasulam said that really the thing that we love most in this world we give over to God, and that's our desire for calmness. We give it over to mm-hmm. God, and we say, we're not going to find calmness. We're willing to put in the effort, and then we find manucha. When when we say Yaakov want Jacob wanted to find peace, right? kufsa rugs There's two ways to look at it. We can say Yaakov Avinu asked for calmness in this world, and Hashem said no, that's not your lot. Sorry, here's difficulty, which is fine, but that's like that you know capricious, almost Kafka-esque like you know mm-hmm. portrayal of God that just wants to like roll dice. God forbid. But then there's another way of reading that statement, which is Yaakov desired to to behold the secret of calmness. How do I sit in calmness? Hashem said, you want to learn what calmness is? Here, take a really difficult situation. Take a trauma and find calmness in there. And that's how you're going to really find Shalva. Mm -hmm. That it's an opportunity. Hashem is saying, you want Shalva, you want to understand the secret of calmness. You're not going to find it in what you expect to be calm. You're going to find it in the struggle.
0: And and going back to what you said before, Rabbi, about that in order for there to be a breakthrough, there has to be some kind of break. Right? In order for a mother to birth a child, there is trauma. There is it is this is is this also like within Kabbalistic thought, like the very you know, nature of the way God created the world? Yeah.
1: Is there it's some very I'm, I'm, a, this is
0: like a the very, very fabulous is, is this connected um is, is yeah, is this, I'm, this is like a leading question, uh, I guess. But is that the concept of Shvira Takelim, the great Kabbalistic idea of the breaking of the vessels?
1: I believe that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is, right? And it's also, which is the Shvirat Takelim, the shattering of the vessels is a second stage trauma, which is a, a symptom, so to speak, of the original trauma, which is the Tzimtzum, which is God's concealment, contraction, removal, whatever a person wants to look at it as. The two great acts of creation were were traumatic ones, were removal of something. Prior to the creation of the world, there was an infinite presence of godly light, whatever that might mean. All we know is that it's a revelation that God filled the entire world with. And in order to create a space other than God, there had to be a vacant void that emerged. And so where once God was found, this suddenly made empty. A person encounters a vacuum that's the first trauma then there was a desire to bring light back in and there had to be a a co-balance or a, a balancing act between lights which are expressive of spirituality and vessels which are a metaphor so to speak for for the receptivity of human beings of that light and there's meant to be an equilibrium between them but what happens is immediately we see too much light vessels shattered and those shattered vessels fall down into various fragments, and those comprise the very building blocks of our reality. That's exactly how it's built. Reality is the post-traumatic fragments of some original wholeness that was never meant to maintain itself. Because if it had maintained itself, then there would have never been reality. The trauma is by wow. design. Wow.
0: Thank you for, that was so clearly put. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank um, I, I want to just shift, and I know it's getting a little late, so I want to have just two other questions, if it's okay. Um, I was a guest on another um, uh, podcast, Two Chassids in a Pod, and they asked me, which is such a great name for a podcast, Anyway, they, they asked what some of the biggest changes that I've seen. I've been I've had the merit of being involved in Jewish outreach work for, for 25 years now, and they wanted to know what was my generation of students, like, how, how have things changed? And I think one of the sort of philosophical shifts that I've seen in the last 25 years is this basically not believing today uh, in objective um, truth, objective morality, this postmodern notion that everything is relative and therefore, in a sense, everything is correct. Everything is somehow a revelation of the truth. Could you give us a little sense of the Kabbalistic or Hasidic perspective on this, because we have these ideas of shivim panim la that the 70 faces of the Torah, you know, two Jews, three opinions. We're not afraid of machloket. We're not afraid of debate. And yet Judaism holds on to certain eternal truths that are exclusive of other things i'm wondering if you could just speak to that because it's a real issue I mean,
1: it's the great mystery of all things you know how it could be that every element of the torah every opinion every shita is true in its own relative positioning but at the same point in the manifestation down here in a practical reality we choose one point over others this mm-hmm. is already so the way that tzadikim described this paradox is that it's a paradox and therefore the only vessel necessary or capable of receiving it is not one of intellect, which abhors paradox. The law of non-contradiction is the binding law of the philosophical Greek-oriented mind, that a, if A is opposite to B and B is opposite to A, then A and B cannot coexist in the same points. But Kabbalah, Panimia Satora, very simply and and dutifully accepts the very premise that A and B, in spite of the fact that they are in opposition to each other, they can coexist. It's a paradox, and the only vessel for that is Amuna or faith. Nevertheless, I believe that the the question of relativism, the relativism of truth, right, Mm -hmm. and the postmodern moment, right, which was this recognition really that all of the previous systems of truth, all of the previous systems, not necessarily of truth, but those structures that took truth and and utilized it for their own power, right? Those binding things of the hierarchies of who's better, who's worse, of what's more valuable, presence at, all of the different things, people began to say, wait a second, who said, who said that these definitive principles that we have been living in accordance with in terms of the intellectual categories of thought These are not divinely. These are not divinely formed. These are human Mm -hmm. constructs. And every time anything is built on human constructs, there's going to come a point of revolution where they say, "This is not binding." Why are we even in these shackles of reason? And and what was amazing about the postmodern moment is that were so many Jewish philosophers who took this as an opportunity. Not for nihilistic kind of making things valueless completely, but really grabbing hold of this and saying, okay, now this is where real value comes out. If nothing matters, then what I do in this moment matters more than anything imaginable. Because my actions and my perspective and the way I live my life is the is the way I am the narrator of reality. Each and every person is the author of their own narrative and reality. And that can be taken that's an immense responsibility, an immense responsibility to be the author of my own reality, to take from that impossibly infinite space where in truth, from the perspective of God, everything is simply relative and untrue because only Hashem alikei chamemas. From the perspective of Godliness, we refer to this world as alma de shikra. The fact that, law, that this relativism of truth has been weaponized, these are all just kind of symptoms of, of an emergent idea. Mm-hmm. it's a delicate one so one has to hold on to the realization that all that matters is my perspective and how I choose in line with how I have chosen to live my life how is it has been conveyed to me by the people I trust and the framework in which I want to live my life hopefully Torah, Kedusha, Tara but to, at the same moment as holding so steadfast in my own particular stream to recognize that vis-a-vis the other person mine is my relative grasp which means that I am no longer engaged in any type of violent relationship with the other where I'm trying to impose. I'm trying to share, yes, Mm -hmm. because my world is better for for that, because I see the guideposts of Torah and mitzvah and the way that I engage in my life as the guiding principle of my life. And naturally, if I have good, just like God is good and wants to bestow good, so too when a person sees the good, they want to share the good. We want to share what we have found. We want to share the ability to choose this particular zarem of Torah and mitzvah while at the same point keeping that open mind vis-a-vis other people. Does that, does that right, make sense? And,
0: and it does, but how would then you translate it to some of the things that are happening in our society, the gender fluidity? Um, well, I'll These have are students all, who will t- any
1: any time, any time. And maybe it's better, Rabbi, to say even to to highlight, meaning some what you see as those symptoms of this idea, you know, misapplied. So we have the gender fluidity. What what are some of the other ways that this manifests?
0: I mean, it manifests in just basic um, values that the Torah has held dear for mm-hmm. for for eternity. Right. You know, since right. you know about marriage and about uh, mm-hmm. you know just I mean, it's literally it's just all the social wars that are right. being fought right. today Absolutely. seem to be you know challenging certain objective standards that we always just assumed right. because in the judeo-christian ethic from our Torah you know and but that's that's being called into question
1: right and but again
0: frame if we frame this question the question
1: of Shira Kalim and the, the broken vessels that, yeah the, the breakthrough that precedes uh, uh, the breakdown that precedes a breakthrough on, on a general perspective anytime that there's an or, that's ready to come into the world, a light, a perspective shift, a perspectival mm-hmm. shift. The vessels need to be prepared for this. This has always been the case. 1840 was meant to be a year of mass revelation in terms of the secrets of Torah, which it was, but it was not the redemption that it was meant to be because that that went to the Industrial Revolution. And in, in times of you know great excitement and anticipation, There's a ha'ara, there's a notion that comes down into the world. And if a person is prepared to receive it properly, then they receive it properly. If not, that very same message is going to be there, but in a misguided, boggled, kind of individualized and and almost perverse way. And so the light Mm -hmm. that is coming down into the world is a light of unity. The very notion at the core of it, from a spiritual perspective, of the fluidity between what one might identify as a gendered category of God in this expression or a gendered category of that of God in that experience or right and left, we, at the highest levels, those things are null and void. And so when there's a iris, now that doesn't affect one iota of how we practically live our lives. Right.
0: Right. right in other yes. words from god's perspective it's all maybe irrelevant on some level you know yes. depending on your so and so
1: and when that comes down it gets if it's not if we're not prepared to shift our minds in the way that we need to learn how to shift our minds then we see the world receives it and the world is kind of it just runs with it and we see the the perverse reactions from it all and so i don't think i mean it look as 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 regrettable as so much of what is going on and how each person has to fight with every ounce of their might to protect their children and their homes from information that they deem to be, you know, not in line with the particular space that they want to live their lives. That's the responsibility of each and every parent and teacher and school and community. But the general zeitgeist without getting involved in the particulars of it i think does gesture towards some element of what's referred to as a reverberating light of a certain element of truth that is not yet ready to be born
0: mm-hmm. or revealed in a healthy way so so these challenges let's say of defining a man according to a you know an x or y chromosome a male versus female and saying no it's more of a social construct you're saying that these these are presenting is opening something up but you know, maybe it's being taken exactly. the wrong way. Exactly. But it's it's a it's a potential breakdown to allow for some, some yes. new Absolutely. revelation to come out.
1: Yes. yes, it's like Riff Cook used to say that and again I don't want to be too focused on the the gendered, you know. Right, no, I'm just
0: giving that as an example.
1: So, there's, there's so gendered, many I mean look, yeah. it happens to be a fundamentally significant one. Fundamentally, it does, you know, on, on every level. Psychiatry and, and culture and and the mystical approach to it but every every breakdown of an old idea ideas sediment themselves and a sedimented idea although at its core its letters can begin to look like a like a graven image after a while Mm -hmm. which is why it's so important to perpetually balance that space of you know Yes, the tariag mitzvos, but I have to always remember that they're also the suggestions that are given to me so that I can best actualize myself. Because when I forget about the etin part of it, that this is Hashem's direct call to me that I am Avram, I am Yitzhak, I am Yaakov, I am the one who is hearing the Torah for the first time, then I can healthily go into the sedimented categories and rigidity of halachic observance and, and have the experience in details and laws yet the inner content of the experience is one of creativity and perpetual renewal. So you have this paradoxical renewal at the heart of repetition, of doing the same thing day in and day out, but doing it in a way that I've never done it before.
0: Wow. All right, Rabbi, I really appreciate the time. Last question, finding the light, finding the light in the darkness, big theme in a lot of your teachings. It's Mm -hmm. a big theme, obviously, in Kabbalah and Kabbalistic teachings. How you as a therapist and as a teacher of Torah can we apply this practically, right? Is there something that our listeners, myself included, all of us can do when we're in those dark times that can allow us to find the light outside of just believing that it's there? Yeah, Anything yeah, yeah. more practically right, you could right, you can right. recommend?
1: So so there's no need to speak of entering the darkness, right? We have to. Our job is to move away from the darkness. At this, point. we're getting there. We're getting to a point where you know it's going to be light because it's light, and not necessarily because it's highlighted. There'll always be a relative darkness, but it doesn't have to be so dark, God willing. But I think there's a, this, a three-stage process that I very often like to utilize or try and share from, um, from the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, from the Holy Baal Shem Tov, the founding father and initiator of the Hasidic revolution at the heart of Yiddishkeit, which is something that I am you know, completely and utterly subsumed by and part of. And oh, this comes from blood, from chust, satmer, whatever, and um, not whatever, just it's a longer conversation. Mm-hmm. So the Baal Shem Tov gives a three-stage, you know, way of dealing with darkness and emerging out of that darkness, or really grappling with that darkness. In Hebrew, the three phrases are hachna'a, havdala, and hamtaka, which means hachna'a means kind of belittling something, making it smaller, diminishing its value. Havdala means separating myself from something, and hamtaka means... Sweetening something. So there is a disassociation with something, a separation from that thing, and an elevation of that thing. So when a person encounters a difficulty, which they might identify as a darkness in their lives, first and foremost, what one must do is name it in order to reduce it in size. Very often our reactions to circumstances are rooted in cognitive distortions, let's say catastrophication, where one thing might be going wrong and it multiplies in my mind to be 10 things. Or this one thing, which is a real significant issue, becomes the only significant issue. Mm -hmm. And to diminish it and to belittle it and to disassociate from it means first and foremost to reduce it in size. Reduce it in size. And,
0: and, and, And naming something doesn't have... Have you seen that naming something doesn't have the opposite effect that it can oh my god now you got the name
1: anxiety anxiety by definition thrives on the unnamability of the thing that it's anxious about (laughs) right it's like a very classic thing you know it's like if you can't name it then there's no way to react to it fear on the other hand is a very healthy response i know what i'm afraid of i know what preparation i have to do and so, you know, Got like it. I love human beings, no matter how much richness we put into the development of cities and structure, we can't sim- we can't get by the brute force of mother nature. We can't get through Teva. A hurricane can come and destroy everything, but that's a little bit hard for people to contemplate, right? If I'm living in Florida, I have to worry, God forbid, that the brute force of unnameable nature is gonna come destroy it. So I'm told to be afraid of Thomas. It's much easier. Thomas, <laughs> it's an identifiable name. You name a hurricane, you reduce it in size. means minimizing the issue realizing that a lot of the magnification is is from my own eyes that's not ignoring the problem and sometimes i might need to speak to somebody a friend a colleague to get an external perspective but if i am subsumed by the issue i can't get out of it if my entire life is this issue there's no breaking free of it so first there's a disassociation and a minimization then i separate myself from the issue I have to identify the fact that I am still here. I am still breathing. I am still functioning in spite of the fact that I am in pain or that there's an emotional discrepancy or that, you know, or, or this happened in my life or that happened in my life. And again, all of this is after one has stabilized whatever needs to be stabilized on a practical matter, obviously. Mm-hmm. If there's a real right. issue, you don't start with the psychological or the mental work. You start with the practical things that need to be done. Um, so once I've minimized it, I can then step out of the problem. I'm no longer identifying myself with the problem. I'm no longer thick in the in the swamp of shame associated with the problem, where I identify with the problem. Now I, I feel the the lighter burden of guilt, which is okay. There's a problem, but you know, I'm, it's not me. I've separated myself from it. Instead of seeing it as a subjective force field, I am am now able to objectify it and see it as something other than me. And at that point, then I engage in the hamtaka process, the sweetening process, which is how can I find either God in my life as a result of this and the emotions opened up in front of me as a result of this encounter, or what's the perspectival shift that I can take as a result of this, or what openings does this issue provide in my life, or how can I try and redeem it? And that's the sweetening practice. So once it's been minimized and separated to the degree that I can now remove myself from it and look at it objectively, then I can begin the work of kind of elevating it.
0: Wow. And, and um, is there, I mean, I guess it depends on the person and the trauma or whatever experience a person's having. Let's say it's not the trauma, you know, it's not like some, you know, very, very dramatic, uh, you know, I heard recently that the bracha, one of the blessings where we ask Hashem to look at our afflictions is not necessarily referring to something objectively so awful. It could be referring to just the everyday anxiety that many of us are plagued with.
1: Absolutely. Right. So, so
0: I guess in other words, so, so would you recommend somebody engage in all these three? I mean, the, the third one about elevating, in other words, first name it, because if you name it, you can reduce it calling the hurricane, whatever it is, or if it's not a, It's not a a traumatic experience, capital T, but, you know, um, because you said that anxiety sort of um, plays off that unknown. And once you know what it is, it's contours, you can kind of like begin to tackle it. The second is to not see yourself as a, not see yourself as the anxiety or, you know, those you separate yourself enough so you could look at it. Mm -hmm. and then the third is to somehow elevate it how do you elevate it (sighs) see elevate it you elevate it
1: by and it could be i don't want to i don't want to add this piece too shortly you know to try and give but i'll Mm -hmm. I'll give a a thompson's and then we'll wait for the next conversation to to address it but the way a person elevates it i i think the the main path of elevating it is by sharing it with a friend finding a friend to go through Mm -hmm. it with that's That's my main recommendation at this point for working through something. It's very hard for a person to do it alone. And just sometimes just sharing and talking is is really all a person needs on any level. That by speaking it out, I I, I find that I'm able to laugh about it a little bit. Or my friend will give me Eitsa. I think friendship is a fundamental piece that our generation struggles with and is beginning to find as well.
0: And, and, and that can help with elevate. I mean, I get how sharing it with a person, whether it's a elevating therapist or it, just elevating, a friend,
1: elevating, elevating doesn't have to be a spiritual activity of seeing the godly sparks in this and bringing it back. We're not all mikubalim, right? Elevating it just goodness. means reducing the pressure that causes in my life and freeing myself from the stuckness of it.
0: Wow. And, and just the cathartic act of catharsis, sharing it can, yeah. can help that.
1: Can help it. And also, I mean, again, these are concepts that deserve more attention, but unfortunately, I'm just a little bit short on time now. But right. um, but speech is a fundamental mechanism. Speech is not speech. simply um, something that conveys information. Speech is a, a functional tool in and of itself. Speaking something out, forming it into words is already a, a process of fixing something. That yeah, debor on. is like breath is one of the most fundamental things that we do as human beings.
0: Rabbi, thank you so, so much. Um, besides listening to InWord, what else would you recommend if people want to get more of your Torah?
1: So there's a website that that somebody made for me, thankfully, it's joeyrosenfeld.org. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have my my YouTube, Shirim. Um, I have, uh, I'm very much connected to Tzadik Rav Meyer Morgenstern, and I have a, a WhatsApp group about him. I'm happy to share all of that. So I have many various ways of mm-hmm. sharing. Academia has right. a number of articles. So, so, but we'll continue to share more Great. of this. Okay,
0: Amen. Amen. Rabbi, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I really, really appreciate it. You, you should uh, just continue to go to Mechal El from strength Amen. to strength. Amen. Rabbi, thank you so much.